0: Father, thank you so much for these men, for a good breakfast, for strong coffee, and every other gift that you supply us, and we thank you for uh, the opportunity to come back to the beginning, go back to Genesis uh, once again, and consider um, matters of theology, and in this case, anthropology, that um, help to strengthen our appreciation of you, our devotion to you, And to solidify our understanding of what we have to do with you, what you have to do with us, how we're to live in this world as men uh, before you. And we pray that you would um, use what we learned today to strengthen our um, joy in you, strengthen our commitment to you, and help us to serve you (laughs) faithfully and with excellence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, <clears throat> so we're kind of in a stage of our teaching on anthropology. I think I mentioned this last time, but we're, we're going to be transitioning to homardiology, the doctrine of sin, and um, there's some important concepts that we need to kind of get down and get underneath our feet before we launch into the doctrine of, of sin and see what happened, what sin did to scramble us as uh, as men, as human beings, um, because there there's some vital, vital concepts, uh, concepts of covenant, federalism, probation, some of those things that we need to make sure that we understand before we, before we transition. So I'll be, tra- I'll be doing part one this week. Uh, we're not going to be back together because of the holiday break and what's going on with different schedules until, on, it looks like February 4th will be the next time we're able to start. It seems like a long way away, but it seems like the older I get, uh, the days move by more quickly and months scroll by more quickly. So we'll be at February 4th before we know it. But uh, So we want to talk about covenant federalism and, and probation and um, spend some time on this. So this morning is just going to be some and it's in rudimentary stuff. This is a rudimentary understanding theologically of covenant. That's what we're going to spend time on today. Covenant, just an agreement between two parties, how God really is showing us how God relates to man. Uh, so we'll be talking about that today. Federalism, uh, we've mentioned this before, but federal in the sense of representative. We, we understand we live in a federal, uh, we have a federal government. It's a representative form of government. So that's uh, that's the same concept we see in scripture, the, fe- the federal or representative headship of Adam and of Jesus Christ. And then we want to talk also about probation and spend some time understanding what what God did to test those two federal heads, uh, Adam in the one case and Jesus Christ in the other case. Mostly we'll be talking about Adam's probation and Adam's headship because there are implications of that uh, in understanding that for how we understand the fall and what happened in the fall. The implications um, and this all comes out of quite naturally uh, comes out of the uh, teaching that we've had on being created in God's image. Uh, the fact that we as men uh, as humanity are created in God's image the implications of that are very very significant. Theologically um, these concepts really lay the necessary foundation for us to understand the doctrines of original sin, um, imputation, and salvation. And especially on that doctrine of original sin, it's a dividing line issue between truth and true salvation, and every form of error, uh, starting with Pelagianism, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a vital, vital concept that we make sure that we protect these doctrines and you understand them. Practically though, these concepts help us, they, they, they seem like lofty concepts. They're really going to be pretty accessible to you, I hope. Uh, I, and that's on me. I hope to make them accessible to you. But these concepts, covenant, federalism, probation, they really help us to understand how God relates to us as men and as a human race. So you can turn to the beginning of your Bible, uh, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. That is the foundational understanding of how God relates to mankind. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, uh, which you can look at that as well. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then the narrative continues. Um, But we see clearly we are created in God's image. We're put here. um, Adam was put there to exercise dominion over the earth, his wife being a helpmate to that. So man and his wife exercising dominion over the earth. And there is a high and holy and special privilege that we've discussed. And you guys got into groups and discussed all this as we doled, doled out some questions to you guys. You guys did a fantastic job discussing that. We came back together last time uh, and went through the answers, and you guys should have gotten the document on that. But I'll, I, I want to come back to this and emphasize that I'm convinced that one of the major challenges we face as men, and I'll just say as Christian men, even us as Christians, um, it's one that thwarts and undermines our quest to know God and serve Him faithfully and consistently consistently, and with with uh, with excellence in our life, a major challenge that we face is that we do not understand what God created us to be if you don 't understand what your purpose is, what the significance of you being you is if you didn't if you didn 't know you had a high and holy calling and special uh, you were set apart for something special, something more, than maybe just your job um, not to not to diminish your job, uh, not to diminish anything in your life but to if you don't understand where all these pieces fit together, you can you can be busy doing things in your life and feel very busy, feel your life is very full, and yet you are actually missing the mark and missing what God has designed you to be and to do. The theological concern is primary, obviously, because we have to know the God with whom we have to do. It's so vital we understand who God is, what he's like, because we need to know him. Um, but anthropology has to be a very close second to theology, to theology proper, because we have to know what we have to do with him, what our obligations are to him, and what you know what he has to do with us, how he relates to us, and how he's set us apart. You guys know through the throughout the series on anthropology, I've been introducing different you know lessons, different different instruction by pointing to some strange sites in the culture. Uh, even even Ron knew about the furries. I, I had no idea. That took me by surprise. Um, the furries took me by surprise. Didn't take nothing takes you by surprise, Ron Matthews. That is saying a lot. Um, but pointing to some of these strange, as we're, as we're kind of traveling in a, in, a, in, a, in a bus together, I'm kind of pointing out different things along the side of the road and say, man, look at that, look at that! What, that, isn't that odd? But it really is um, intentional. I'm not just trying to point to strange things. Um, I'm just showing how America and the West uh, has departed from God, and in departing from God, it's departed from sanity. Um, it's had a destructive effect on us as a culture, uh, it's had a dehumanizing effect. Ours has now become an anti-human culture of death, and we have seen exhibit after exhibit after exhibit that demonstrates that. We need to though, realize that that culture of death and that dehumanizing that's going on all around us, how that culture affects us, and how it's desensitized us, how it's infected our thinking and the culture, or the thinking of our families, how the culture infects all of us. In fact, it's extremely aggressive. It's ported through in every device and every, every, um, every, everything you go into. You just walk into a store. If you pick up anything, if you do any business, uh, it's it's it really is everywhere. And just because you don't sense it, doesn't mean it's not happening. Doesn't mean you are not being enculturated and indoctrinated and discipled by a uh, very aggressive and and and. In, in many cases subtle culture you have to have your your senses trained and attuned to righteousness you have to have your senses you have to have your your whole mind and your thinking biblically saturated so that you can spot what the world's trying to do to you and your family so that you can train them and instruct them so you can be shielded against it and you can lead your family your wife and your family through it because frankly you are the point man in this situation, and if the point man doesn't have his eyes open and his ears open, what's to become of the squad that's following behind you? You need to you need to be out in front and have your eyes open. So we need to see how all this has affected us, and we don't do it just by pointing at strange sights in the culture. That's easy to do. Point out all the all the different counterfeit ways of living. We need to recover a high view of humanity, a high view of humanity, and that poses another challenge because there are modern philosophers and influencers and attention merchants on the, on the conservative right who are strong, confident voices, a number of them championing Judeo-Christian thinking to one degree or another. Um, and they're standing against the cultural tide and they look very strong and they're very confident in pointing out that there is another way. But what is that way? What is the way that they're pointing people to? What truth do they hold to? What absolutes do they hold to? How do they interpret the book that we, uh, that we revere and esteem? What absolutes do they submit to in their own lives? The high view of humanity that we need to recover and return to isn't found out there. It's not found out there. It's not found by looking at the culture or hearing podcasts and things that you find online. It's found right here in this book. It's in the Holy Bible. Whenever God has been pleased to pour out his grace such that it would arrest the decline of a people and turn them away from death and back to life, it's by a return to scripture. And we need to go back to the beginning. That's why we're coming back to Genesis and some of these crucial foundational Um, issues. So we can't go further back than Genesis 1. Can't get a more foundational uh, understanding than that. And that's for understanding not only how God made man, which we've covered, but why God made man and see how he relates to mankind and what that teaches us about human worth. So I've got got some things that I want to go through. This is kind of uh, titling this How God Relates to Humanity Part 1 and there will be a part two in February, and who knows, uh, hopefully that'll do it, but it may not. We may just continue in part three, four, 18, whatever. So how God relates to humanity part one, and I just, I'm just going to go through, I'll, I'll point out the, you don't need to take notes on any of this, but just so you know I'm moving from one point to another. I want start, to start with, and I've got a lot to read to you, a lot of quotes from different systematic theologies. But talk about, first of all, The original state of man, and I want you to hear a couple of these, a quote from John Murray and a quote from Louis Burkoff. John Murray writes this about the original state of man. Man was created in the image of God, a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. Such identity, identity implies an inherent, native, inalienable obligation to love and serve God with all the heart, soul, strength, and mind. This God could not but demand, and man could not but owe. No created rational being can ever be relieved of this obligation. All that man is and does has reference to the will of God. So think about that. The fact that he created us in his image means that we correspond to him in these very significant ways, self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent, that's what we are, as agents of God. And we, that creates just by virtue of being, it creates an obligation, a religious obligation to love, serve him, and do his will. That's what we are designed for. It is, it is the highest and holiest calling that there is. Murray goes on to say, but man was also created good. Good in respect of that which he specifically is. He was made upright and holy and therefore constituted for the demand, endowed with the character enabling him to fulfill all the demands devolving upon him by reason of God's propriety in him and sovereignty over him. End quote. Louis Burkoff writes in his systematic theology, he says, Protestants teach that man was created in a state of relative perfection a state of righteousness and holiness. This does not mean that he had already reached the highest state of excellence of which, he was, of which he was susceptible. It is generally assumed that he was destined to reach a higher degree of perfection in the way of obedience. He was something like a child, perfect in parts, but not yet in degree. His condition was a preliminary and temporary one, which would either lead on, on, which would either lead on to greater perfection and glory or terminate in a fall. Um, Obviously, terminating in the fall, as it did happen, I'm just inserting this here, we understand by God's decree, his redemptive decree, that God didn't destine mankind to end and terminate in Adam, but to terminate in Jesus Christ. And so there is a higher degree of perfection that we are to attain to, which is why that comment from Jesus Christ, when he says, it is finished, is so, so significant. Going on with Berkhoff, he, mankind, man was by nature endowed with that original righteousness, which is the crowning glory of the image of God, and consequently lived in a state of positive holiness. He was by nature endowed with that original righteousness, which is the crowning glory of the image of God, and consequently lived in a state of positive holiness. The loss of that righteousness meant the loss of something that belonged to the very nature of man in its ideal state man could lose it and still remain man but he could not lose it and remain in the ideal remain man in the ideal sense of the word in other words its loss would really mean a deterioration and impairment of human nature moreover man was created immortal this applies not only to the soul but to the whole person of man and therefore does not merely mean that the soul was destined to have a continued existence Neither does it mean that man was raised above the possibility of becoming a prey to death. This can only be affirmed of the angels and the saints in heaven. It does mean, however, that man, as he was created by God, did not bear within him the seeds of death and would not have died necessarily in virtue of the original constitution of his nature. Though the possibility of his becoming a victim of death was not excluded, he was not liable to death as long as he did not sin. It should be borne in mind that man's original immortality was not something purely negative and physical, but it was something positive and spiritual as well. It meant life in communion with God and the enjoyment of the favor of the Most High. This is the fundamental conception of life in Scripture. Just as death is primarily separation from God and subjection to His wrath, the loss of this spiritual life would spell death and would also result in physical death. End quote. Going back to the issue of life, the concept of life, and our God being a living God, and being the author of life, that all life is in him, that it is his essence to exist, and it's his essence to have life in himself, and Jesus Christ having life in himself, and he gives life to whomever he will. God, having life in himself, gave life to us and wanted us to share in that life. And as he says here, that's not primarily talking about continuing existence. It's talking about a certain, not just quantity of time, but quality of time, a quality of life. It meant life in communion with God and the enjoyment of the favor of the Most High. When we were doing our debrief after the group projects last time, or the group discussion, we came back together and did our debrief. We, I can't remember exactly who we were, you know, who was bringing it up, but we were interacting about what if, what if we hadn't sinned? What, what would be developed in the world in technology? Remember, we were talking about, we were given a dominion over all creatures, whether they are the creatures of the sea or the air and the land. And I was just advocating for the Navy SEALs at that point, sea, air, and land, going back to God's original design, that's why they are the best special forces that there are. <laughs> Danny Giles. Um, but I think about the kind of technology that could be developed to exercise dominion over the creatures of the sea, and the creatures of the sky, and the land, and everything in it. There's a dignity and a, in, that God created us with, and created us to think of, and be cognizant of as we move through this Earth, all that was short-circuited by sin and the fall, and yet his intent for mankind remains, and it will be fully restored in Jesus Christ. We talked about the, the fact that even unsaved men will see that great dignity, the high and holy calling God has for mankind, as Jesus Christ rules and reigns physically and visibly here on this earth during a millennial kingdom. It's so necessary to fulfill all of that in scripture. And we men are going to be a part of that as the church returning with him to rule and reign on this earth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know, and he says, he's, he's, he's rebuking the Corinthians for being so low-minded that they would take, up, take squabbles within the church and take it outside and sue one another in secular courts, pagan courts. Saying, don't you know that we're gonna judge angels? How much more than the matters of this life? Get your act together, grow up, be the men that you are, and 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 operate according to the way a church ought to operate. He's 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 truly giving those guys a spanking. He's saying, You're you're gonna judge the earth, you're gonna judge angels, how much more the matters of this life? We've got to get our heads out of this world. And out of all of its trivialities and distractions, and quit living life for just you yourself, whatever you're into, and get your head into scripture and see this is what you are called to. This is what we are called to be and to do. God has such great things for us. It's not all going to be realized here in this life right now. But we can keep on track and keep on focus with what he has called us to do as Christians in the church. Live as Christians in the church. Two pages after that section I quoted in Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, he writes about man's original state and says the discussion, quote, would not be complete without considering the mutual relationship between God and man, and especially the origin and nature of the religious life of man, which he says is rooted in covenant, covenant. That's what we're going to discuss today. This idea of covenant, and we'll get into more detail on this next time as well. The prototype of the covenant. If you're in Genesis chapter two, verses fifteen to seventeen, um, the prototype that I'm going moving from uh, the original state of man into the prototype of the covenant, and that's right here in Genesis two fifteen through seventeen. The way in which God relates uh, relates to us is by means of covenant, and that is a, in, in saying that we see it originally here as an agreement between two parties. This agreement stipulates duties and obligations. There are rewards for obedience, and there's punishment for disobedience. The punishment for disobedience, in this will be death. Right. The reward for obedience is the. It's it's strongly implied there is life. Will talk about that when we get to Adam's probation. <clears throat> but the prototype of relationship between God and man and, by the way, between men, between all men in their relationships on this earth is set right here. Found in Genesis two fifteen 15-17, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. There was one group that had that particular question about work It being a pre-fall gift of God to work. So, Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of of every tree of the garden. It's this magnanimous permission that God gives. And then there's one prohibition. One little tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we're going to come back to those verses and look at them in more detail next time. But I want to make some, take note of a few things and make some things plain. The elements of a covenant are there. There are two parties. We see parties, um, stipulations. So you see two parties, God and Adam. There's an agreement. And by the way, where is Eve when this this is made when this command is given. She's not, she's not there yet. Right. This is Adam's privilege and duty to share all this with his wife and putting him in the role of a teacher and her in the role of a student, a learner. So two parties, God and Adam, there's an agreement between the two parties in a manner of speaking. Um, There are stipulations in the threat for disobedience and then the strongly implied promise of life for obedience the parties that are in the covenant in any covenant between men. We understand that there is parity, or we could say, in other words, equality that exists between the two parties. Since men are on the same level with one another, each one of us doesn't matter our age or job or experience. We are before God of the same essence and therefore the same with one another. So, In any covenant between us, we're on an equal plane as creatures before God. But in any covenant that God establishes, obviously we understand the disparity there. We understand we are not equal on an equal plane with God. We are in a completely different, he is in a completely different realm, all of his own. Singular, right? There's only one God, only one true and living God. So the disparity is self-evident in the fact that God is a creator and man is a creature. That's why in this agreement between God and Adam, it's the role of God to command. That's his role and his right. It's what he does. He sets forth the terms of the relationship. He sets forth the terms of this covenant and it's man's duty to obey. The reason for covenant and the important point and one that's easily overlooked or I, should, I shouldn't say maybe reason, but maybe implications of this covenant. When God commands us to obey, think about that. You, We tend to think of Anybody commanding us, this is because we're fallen, by the way, we tend to think of anybody commanding us as in an adversarial relationship with us. They've got to press us into service. And the way we are pressed into service in this fallen world is by money, right? So they give us something, it's transactional. They give us something, and then we do something. That's the obligation that we're held to. And, um, you know, if. uh, If someone comes in and conquers, then they hold a gun to your head and they say, do this and you'll live and you'll say, all right, I'll do it. Um, So you're pressed into, into doing whatever is commanded of us, but it is an adversarial relationship. There's no adversarial relationship here. Not before the fall. And so when God commands Adam to obey, he's treating Adam with dignity. This is something that we don't We don't instinctively think this way. Why? Because we're fallen and because we're emerging from a fallen condition. We need to realize that him speaking to Adam this way is treating Adam with dignity. God is recognizing in Adam the image of God that he has placed there. He's treating Adam with this kind of regard that he would command him. So he commands our responsibility. He calls us to the duty that he's given us. Burkhoff writes this. All God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions with which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. It's God's right to command Adam's conscience, to tell him what to do, tell him this is how you relate to me. But think about the, the great joy and privilege that that is, too, that Adam would be so called. Moreover, Adam was, even in virtue, I'm going on with Burkhoff here, Adam was, even in virtue of his natural relationship in duty, bound to obey God. And when the covenant relation was established, this obedience also became a matter of self-interest. When entering into covenant relations with men, it's always God who lays down the terms, and they are very gracious terms, so that he has a perfect right to expect that man will assent to them. In the case under consideration, God had but to announce the covenant and the perfect state in which Adam lived was a sufficient guarantee for his acceptance. Think about it. Does God command us anything that hurts us? Does he command us anything that's harmful to us? Does he command us anything that dehumanizes us or that strips us of dignity? Absolutely not. Everything he commands is good. That's the environment in which Adam is thinking as he's hearing this coming from God. Notice also by virtue of the fact that God commands, there are no, there is no coercion in God's commands or his stipulations. He doesn't treat us as robots, as moral robots, uh, as automatons. His commands acknowledge the freedom that he gave us. We are, uh, Men who believe in the doctrines of grace, we believe in a kind of a Calvinistic view, but does that mean we deny free will? No, we do not. We understand, the, we understand how the will is free to make decisions within whatever sphere it is, it, it's in. So if it's in the sphere of sin and unrighteousness and death, the will is free to pursue that. Once we're transferred from death to life, now we have the freedom to Make obedient decisions. And we have where our will is set free. But it's set free what? For personal license to do whatever it is we want? No, that's sin. That's sinful thinking. Freedom is to do God's will. And that's what God has commanded here. He's commanded a certain kind of freedom to Adam. So his commands, the fact that he commands Adam's conscience here, acknowledges the freedom that he gave to Adam a freedom to make a decision. He treats him as a human being created in his image as a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. So, just, and and there are more, more positive, joyful implications we could find there. We will in time to come, but I want to go back to this section. This section is seen theologically as the basis for all future covenant. So when you think about biblical covenants like Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, they all are patterned off of this right here. And, and yet we understand that the word covenant is not used there. Uh, we understand doctrine of the Trinity as well, right? But point me to the chapter and verse that tells you, here's the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father is God, and yet he is not the Son of the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but he's yet not the Son of the Father. The Son is God, but he's not the, and yet all one God. You're not going to find a verse like that, right? It's a construct. We call that a theological construct. It's a valid way of reasoning from Scripture. Same thing here. The word covenant not used here in Genesis 2, 16-17, but all the elements of covenant are present. So, that's why we see that Genesis 2, 16-17 becomes the prototype for all kinds of covenants. Not just the one that God's uh, God's um, not just the ones that God makes with men, but also the ones among men. So think about the kind of covenants that determine our relationships. You made a covenant with your wife. Those of you who are married, you made a covenant with your wife, and so you have a covenant, and you know what? Your covenant is patterned on this right here. Whether you realize that or not, it's patterned on that. Um, you have a, a covenant covenants uh, in here in government, you know whenever a, whenever a newly sworn official places a hand on the Bible and raises his right hand and swears to do there's stipulations involved in that two parties and stipulations, same thing in business. Many refer to Genesis two sixteen to seventeen as the covenant of works. It's a term that's universally recognized covenant of works, but it's not universally accepted as the best term. Um, there are a number of theologians that take different approaches. Burkhoff lists several names for this covenant of works, calls it the covenant of, it could be called the covenant of nature, the covenant of life, the Edenic covenant. i talking about the Garden of Eden where it was formed. And then Burkhoff, though, at the end, he comes back to the covenant of works, seeing that as most preferable, and I understand why. Charles Hodge prefers, prefers the term covenant of life John Murray prefers not the term covenant, but Adamic administration. And we'll come back to that and the reasons for that next time. Um, Material point, though, is that Genesis uh, 2.16-17 sets forth the manner in which God deals with mankind. Whether we call it a covenant or not, this is how he deals with mankind, and this is the prototype for all covenants. God's dealing with Adam is particular. Uh, it's unique to Adam, it's unique to this situation, it's non-repeatable, but his manner of dealing with, uh, with Adam is characteristic of his dealing with all mankind. Let me talk about moving into another section here on the definition of covenant. So we talked about the, the image of God and man, talked about the prototype of covenant, now the definition of covenant. Charles Hodge says this, God, having created man after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Next, he says, God made to Adam a promise suspended upon a condition and attached to disobedience a certain penalty. This is what in scriptural language is meant by a covenant. And this is all that is meant by the term as here used. Another place he says this, God then did enter into a covenant with Adam. That covenant is sometimes called the covenant of life because it was promised as the reward, uh, because life was promised as the reward of obedience. Sometimes it's called the covenant of works because works were the condition on which the promise was suspended. And because it is thus distinguished from the new covenant which promises life on condition of faith. So life promised here in the beginning on the condition of works, which is why it's called the covenant of works. It can also be called the covenant of life. And then we see the promise in the new covenant is life is conditioned on the promise or the, on the condition of faith. Do we have faith in God? Wayne Grudem says a covenant is an unchangeable divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So again, you see agreement stipulations and he adds this concept of it's unchangeable. Once God sets it in motion, it's not, you don't change it. It's immutable. So there's an agreement. Again, you see two parties, God and man, and they are in relationship and noted in the agreement. Nature of the relationship is free and voluntary with both parties. Stipulations, God stipulates the terms, that's what Grudem means by divinely imposed, and man is not able to negotiate or change those terms. It's unchangeable. Covenants may be superseded or replaced, but they can't be changed or modified once established or ratified. Herman Bovink writes this, he says, generally, a covenant is an agreement between two persons who voluntarily obligate and bind themselves to each other for the purpose of fending off an evil or obtaining a good. He continues with this. Such an agreement, whether it's made tacitly or defined in explicit detail, is the usual form in terms of which humans live and work together. Love, friendship, marriage, as well as all social cooperation in business, industry, science, art, and so forth, is ultimately grounded in a covenant that is a reciprocal fidelity and an assortment of generally recognized moral obligations. It should not surprise us, therefore, that also the highest and most richly textured life of human beings, namely religion, bears this character. In Scripture, covenant is the fixed form in which the relation of God to his people is depicted and presented, and even where the word does not occur, we nevertheless always see the two parties, as it were, in dialogue with each other, dealing with each other, with God calling people to conversion, reminding them of their obligations, and obligating himself to provide all that is good. End quote. You guys understand, basically just nod at me or shake your head vehemently, one, one way from one side to the other. Do you understand basically what a covenant is? Agreement between two parties? There are stipulations in that agreement, conditions, so negative outcome for disobedience to that covenant and positive outcome for obedience to that covenant. Okay? Good? All right. Um, let me identify covenants in the Bible. We, we want to distinguish here between covenants that are theological in nature, uh, theological constructs. Um, Kind of akin to the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a theological construct. We understand that's valid even though there's no chapter and verse that we point to, but chapter and verses that do create that doctrine of the Trinity for us, we understand that. So we distinguish between covenants that are theological constructs and then those actually cited as covenants in Scripture. So the ones that are theological constructs, like I'm talking about the covenant of works, we'll unpack that here, and then also Those cited in scripture, which are really covenants of grace. So the covenants of works, we would say that these are pre-fall agreements and they are theological constructs. We have first the covenant of redemption. Anybody heard of the covenant of redemption? Okay. One, two, three, four, covenant of redemption, five. Have you heard of the covenant of redemption? All right. Are you, everything good? Okay, all right. Um, So, a few of you have heard of the covenant of redemption. This is talking about, and um, again, language fails us here. My son Nicholas hates when I use temporal language to speak of what happened prior to creation, but I have no other language to speak of what happened before creation. Um, God is, and He was prior to anything coming into being um, that is not God. Um, but I don't know how to. Nicholas, I guess, is wanting me to use some type of uh, different language. I don't know how to do this. Was, was. He was before there was a was. Thank you, but that's going to get cumbersome, and I will <laughs> I guarantee I will misstate that at some point. There's a covenant of re- so these are covenants of works. Okay, covenant of redemption is a covenant of works, so it's also called the eternal covenant. You can write down, if you're writing any of this down, John 6, 37 to 44, um, 2 Timothy 2.9, Titus 1, two, the parties, the covenants made between the Father and the Son. Some theologians see the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the stipulations, the Father gives a people to the Son, the Son redeems that people, gives them back to the Father, and all this is by the agreement and, and cooperation and operation of the Holy Spirit. So stipulations, God giving a people to the son, and the son doing his duty to that, to that gift to redeem them for himself. And he does that work. He does it perfectly. And the son redeems that people, gives them back to the father for the father's glory. Gr- Grudem writes this, as an extended one, so get comfortable. On the part of the father, this covenant of redemption included an agreement to give the, to, the, to the son a people whom he rede- redeemed for his own possession. There's a bunch of uh, scripture verses here. I'm not going to cite them all. You can come up and take a picture of this if you want to, but not, not yet. Um, So he's going to give to the son of people whom he he would redeem for his own possession to send the son to be their representative, to prepare a body for the son to dwell in as a man, to accept him as a representative of his people whom he had, whom he had redeemed and to give him all authority in heaven and on earth, including the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit and power to apply redemption to his people. Those are the stipulations and obligations of the Father to the Son and the Spirit. On the part of the Son, there was an agreement that He would come into the world as a man and live as a man under the Mosaic law, that He would be perfectly obedient to all the commands of the Father, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The Son also agreed that He would gather for Himself a people in order that none whom the Father had given Him would be lost. So those are the stipulations of the Son. That's what He will do in obedience and obligation to His covenant. Pardon the covenant. The role, role of the Holy Spirit in the covenant of redemption is sometimes overlooked in discussions of the subject, but he cer- certainly, certainly it was a unique and essential one. He agreed to do the will of the father and, f- and fill and empower Christ to carry out his ministry on earth and to apply the benefits of Christ's redemptive work to his people after Christ returned to heaven. Role of the father, son, spirit in this covenant of redemption. Pre- Not just pre-fall, but pre-creation. Pre-anything that is not God coming into existence. Grudem writes this, To refer to the agreement among the members of the Trinity as a covenant reminds us that it was something voluntarily undertaken by God. Not something that he had to enter into by virtue of his nature. However, this covenant is also different from the covenants between God and man because the parties enter into it as equals whereas in covenants with man God is the sovereign creator who imposes the provisions of the covenant by his own decree on the other hand it is like the covenants God makes with man in that it has the elements specifying the parties conditions and promised blessings then make up a covenant End quote that is a pre-creation covenant and it's a covenant of works which we'll get to in a minute but it's called the covenant of redemption it's an inter- inter-Trinitarian um, um, covenant. And we can see, even, even as I went through and read those things, you're, you're identifying all that as like, yeah, that's the gospel. That's the storyline of scripture. That's the storyline of redemption. I, all that makes total sense to me. And all that is attested to as this pre-creation agreement in the persons among the persons of the Trinity. The next... Uh, Covenant of Works is called the Covenant of Works, or the, as we said, it's got different names, Covenant of Life, Adamic Administration, uh, a number of different things like that. Parties between, and it's Genesis 2, 16-17, as we were talking about. So the parties are between God and man, and stipulations. God stipulated, you may eat of every tree, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Those two covenants, Redemption and Works, are covenants of works. Here are some covenants of grace. This is, all these covenants of grace are post-fall. Why would a covenant of grace necessitate that it be post-fall? Because you don't need grace prior to the fall, right? Okay, so all these are post-fall. Some theologians see a covenant of grace, and then they see these biblical covenants, these biblical texts, as administrations of the covenant of grace. And some say, no, these are all just different covenants, but they all form a, a concept of covenant of grace. So, post Paul here, the biblical text, we've talked about the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenant, five of them. So, the Noahic, Noahic covenant, you can see Genesis 9, 1 to 17. You got the parties, it's between God and Noah, his offspring, and every living creature. Stipulations God is not going to destroy life by the flood. Noah and his offspring will pursue life, procreation, and not death in the form of murder. We get from Genesis 9 in that original, um, that first biblical covenant, we see the death penalty, capital punishment. And I can tell you that our society and our culture is not upholding its part of that covenant. Abrahamic covenant, we see this in Genesis 12 to 17. You can especially see the covenant uh, formalized and ratified in Genesis 15:7 to 12, uh, 7 to 21, I'm sorry. Um, the, co- the parties of that covenant are between God and Abraham and His seed, and the stipulations, "I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly." That's just one statement of that, okay? Mosaic covenant. Exodus 19 through 24. those chapters. Well, who are the parties there? God and the nation of Israel. Stipulations: You shall have no other gods before me. And Exodus twenty, verse three, and then I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. Exodus six, verse seven. Mosaic covenant really administrates Israel's participation in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so it's a kind of an administrative form as well. The Davidic covenant, Second Samuel seven, eight through seventeen. The parties are God and David and David's offspring the stipulations god will bless the nation israel and give david a dynasty and he will establish that dynasty through david's offspring all that's there in second samuel 7 and then the new covenant jeremiah 31 31 to 34 you can also see this unpacked more in the book of hebrews particularly hebrews 8 6 to 13 who are the parties in the new covenant says right there in jeremiah 31 god and the house of israel and the house of judah Um, stipulations. God says uh, he'll put his law within them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. Um, Those are the promises in that covenant of life and that's covenant based on, uh, enter into that on all these covenants really on the basis of faith, faith and obedience. Um, Those are the biblical covenants and those are the covenants of grace. Now I want to move into a section for for some discussion here. Uh, on explaining this concept of covenant. And to understand the theology of the covenants, I want to start from kind of a 35,000 foot view and just pose a few questions to you. First of all, when I say the word works, as in covenant of works, when I say the word works, what, what comes to your mind? Instinctively, is works a good term in your mind or a bad term in your mind? Just action. Yes. James. Good works being that of evidence, not of earning. That's how I it. Okay, so if works are evidence um, good, if they are meritorious, you'd say bad. Yes. Okay.
1: Chuck. Well, just at the foundational level, works is doing something, whether it
0: be speaking or action. Works is doing something at a foundational level. And so are you pro-works or
1: anti? <laughs> well, you just, you, did you ask just for the definition of work?
0: No, I didn't ask for the definition of works. I said, when I, when I use the word works, what comes to your mind? you instinctively react positively or negatively to that word works? I know many men when I say, hey, you want to go do some work?
1: <laughs> we don't react that negative. Don't
0: react real well. I got, I got stuff to do. I got places to be. Thinking he's, in his mind, he's got a little bubble there, and it's a couch with a remote control. But he's telling you stuff to do, you know. I got other works, can't do your works. Yeah, That makes me think of obligation. Okay, works, the, the concept makes you think of obligation. And is obligation good or bad? Depends on what I'm obligated to and who I'm obligated to, right? An obligation to a government to pay taxes to them so they can fund abortion? Not so, not so hip on that, right? I'm starting to become more and more irritated by that. Obligation to obey God and do His will. I'm growing in my understanding of that. that's a really good okay. thing. Yeah, responsible action is what's in my mind. I think it's what we're saying. Okay. But that's instinctively what comes to your mind when I use the word works is responsible action? It does now. I mean, I think okay. I think okay. growing, uh, kind of developing
1: as a Christian. I know, I think mean, a lot of us were, I've been... In,
0: Saturated with an antinomian. Mean, yeah, antonom- antinomian
1: Antinomia. words are bad. Ooh, that is a nasty word. I mean, it, and it comes from Paul you know, the Well,
0: it's just exactly what James said, right? What James has, James's answer has to do with a, a Pauline understanding of works versus you know grace. You know.
1: But I think yeah, I think we can take Paul. You know, trying to contrast James too trying to contrast <laughs> works and grace. And then
0: say, just assuming, okay, all works. And that, that's a that's a bad word. That's a the word. That's something we to avoid in play. And that's a mistake. Yeah, working for our own righteousness, bad. Clearly bad. Okay, but let's let's understand. Let's keep on going with understanding. Yes. Uh, who was? I saw somebody point over, I think it was you, Chuck.
1: So it depends on the context. So the, the knee-jerk reaction. So, like we've said, you know, pre-fall work was a good thing. So, work's definitely good. Okay, good. But then it depends: is it is it evidentiary or is it um, or is it to earn bad? So it all depends on the context. So there should okay. be probably a milieu on how we look at it. Base it was good, but then we're work working it out it can be very bad.
0: Very helpful. Okay, depends on the context. Depends on what we're talking about, where we're talking about, if we define the term and define its context. We can we can make that judgment then, but instinctively we still tend to see works bad, uh, and this is what David's saying. Uh, Bill and then Joe. Uh, Bill, oh, Rufus. Rufus for Bill, he said it's
1: good. He, is he?
0: Are you? Is Rufus your interpreter? Because you have no voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just whisper it. Whisper it into Rufus's ear. We just want to see that. <laughs> and then Rufus will let us know. <laughs>
1: Reflection of obedience, that's
0: why it's good. Okay, that's why it's good, but is that instinctively what comes to your mind when you think about works? For Bill? Okay.
1: I'll take the David answer on that. It's a work in progress.
0: Okay, David answer on that, that it's a work in progress, yes. Now, yes. Instinctively, maybe where we've come from, not so much, but we're growing in an understanding of this, Okay. So yeah,
1: but because it has to be the outflowing of the gospel. If we if we understand God, man, Christ's response well, what's the result of that? Is obedience. That's yeah. going to result in righteous, good works, not not salvific on the on the face of it yes. the, on the wrong right. but as a reflection back to what is born.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Um, coming back here, I thought I saw you, Ryan. First, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Just when I when I hear words, I think of. Of outputs, and then I look you know, at sanctification. So, you know, the more I grow in sanctification, I, I view that as a uh, as a good thing. It's the it's it's what I'm doing uh, just to serve. Um, so, but that's that's just because the, that's the spirit working in me. But my initial reaction is is just going to be negative. It's it's that obligation that someone else would put on me that my flesh does not want to
0: do. OK. Good. Okay, so I saw other hands. Let me, let me just hold those comments. We've got more to do. When, when God so just keying off of what you just said, Brian, I appreciate that. When God put Adam in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, Genesis 2:15, this is why I read these together, Genesis 2:15 through 17, God put Adam in the garden. Of Eden to work it and keep it. He gave Adam a physical work to do. And called it good. You think Adam got up every morning. Like saying I can't wait to get to work. Yes. That exactly. And we all understand that. Pre-fall with no sin. No thorns and thistles growing out of the ground. Everything easy. Everything is good. So in the very next verses when God gives Adam a spiritual work to do, is that good too? It is. And his inclination being created in in righteousness, not tested yet, but righteousness, in innocence, in holiness, his instinct then was to say, rejoice, good. Is salvation by grace or by works I, her, someone said both. Yeah. You're heretic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's start a new let's start a new cult. We'll call it Killerites. <laughs> All right, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I made a funny <laughs> uh, it's from Christ's standpoint. It's works because it's his, yeah, it's, his it's his obedience that provides the justification
1: for us to be right with God. And then given to us by grace, so it's grace, kind of from our perspective, but it's Christ's work that accomplishes it.
0: Okay. So it depends. Again, going back to Chuck's comment, how are we defining terms? What's the context? If we're de- defining works and grace, depending on, like, say, Christ's salvation is by His works. By our, or by God's grace through faith, though, for us. We can't work and merit our own salvation, but Jesus did work and merit salvation for us. Someone over here I saw raised a hand. And if you're not going to jump in, then I'll go here. Austin.
2: Uh, I was just going to say, I like the summation of looking at the new covenant as the covenant of works kept for us, which is really a summation of what... Steve said, right? But, but God's standard has always been the same and his justice must be maintained. So mm-hmm. I, I like mm-hmm. that language of it's works. Yep. And that's why the active obedience of Christ is so vital to it the is. gospel, right? But, but we receive grace. So that's the difference between the covenant of works with Adam was he was stipulated works in, in the new covenant were stipulated grace through faith, through faith.
0: So faith, faith is what our obligation and duty is. But for Christ, it was works. It was fulfilling that original covenant, right? Okay? So, does anybody else have a comment? Yeah. And then and, and we'll come back here to Jeff. Kind of a question. Um, more like, is, this tr- is it true to say this? I'm asking the questions here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: true to say that in our fallen condition, our works do nothing
0: more but to um, prove our just condemnation before God and further our condemnation before God. Our Our works? works You mean prior prior to Christ, 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 like like, working to earn our our salvation? salvation? Well, works that are purely ours in our fallen state. Okay, yeah. Any work in our fallen condition done according to our own power and might, yes, they, they, they basically contribute toward our condemnation. But even as believers, as believers, the works we do are the ones that he created for us in Christ Jesus to do before time began.
1: Right. But the work we do isn't our own work. It's, it's Christ
0: doing the work in and through us. Right? And yet we are participating in that freely as responsible moral religious agents. So there is there is a participation in that. But we're, are we responsible yeah. for those good works? Sure. And they're attributed to us? No, they're, they're attributed to God, working through us. And so, um, but yes, we're responsible to do them and to walk in them, to be obedient to them. It's a moral obligation on us, a duty. Yeah. But I don't want to go any further on this. We could chase it down. I got a uh, lot to, to you, do. Sir. So, Jeff. I, I'm just right, right along the lines with that. I think I was on the same page with well. him. Christ's works enables us to be back able to work for Him by the power of the Holy Spirit? Am is saying that right? I, th- I think Christ so. Christ's works <laughs> puts us back into a, a state now, by redemption, that we're able to actually work again for Him, Ephesians 2.10. hmm because yeah, it, it, it puts us in a right relation to God where we can actually do, but we're not contributing to our salvation one iota. Okay, so I just want to make that very clear. There's, yeah, let's, let's, let's hit justification, and that is a, that is a single thing, and we'll, we'll get to that justification. Then we come to sanctification, which is a progressive uh, idea, but that's not contributing to our justification. The justification is a once for all declaration of God to justify us, to declare us righteous on the basis of. Christ's works. Okay? So, um, I, I know we could go a lot of different directions, um, but let's not, Jesse. Um, so, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So, for, for us, salvation is by grace, through faith. But our salvation brought about by means of works, namely the works of Christ. And that's, that really is what Solus Christus means. The Solus of the Reformation, we go back to Sola Soligratia. Uh, so scriptura Solus Christus really does point to it's the works of Christ and Christ alone it's not and and we can't take the meritor there, there is no merit in our works we don 't take any works of the saints and put them into a treasure chest uh, along with Christ and his works and all the, the the merit of the saints, and then draw from that through indulgences or that's the Catholic concept okay that is not true, and what is true is that Christ accomplished everything. It's his works, Christ and Christ alone. That's why it's salvation by grace alone, God's grace alone, by means of it, through the conduit of faith alone, no works added of our own. Even the faith that we have to believe is done by God's work in us, his initiative, his regenerating grace to give us a new nature, a nature that then would believe. And then believing is because he's done his work, his initiative. So then we believe, and through, the, through faith alone, and it's in Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because it's only his works as our federal head. Okay? So these are the things we'll come to. Why then do we say that post-fall covenants are covenants of grace? Some would say, as I said, multiple administrations of a single covenant of grace. But why do we say these post-fall covenants are covenants of grace? Someone said it already.
1: Christ didn't have to come and die for us. So everything that he offered us after the fall is grace. He offered us everything before the fall, and that was to be with him, have his union with him continually. He gave us everything, Then after the fall, everything that we got after that was pure grace. Okay,
0: on our part, grace. But Christ did have to come and die for us. He yeah.
1: didn't have to in the sense that he didn't owe us. But Christ had to, okay, okay, yeah. to. To fulfill his covenant yeah. of grace towards <clears> us. <throat> there you go. And so he's... Say it's grace, it's
0: the grace of right, right. So he's, he's doing what he must do in his covenant obligations to the covenant of redemption. Right? That pre-creation agreement between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He's doing his part and he's doing his works. And then we benefit from the grace of that. So why, is it, why are these post-fall covenants? Noahic, Abrahamic... Um, mosaic and um, what else, uh, Davidic and New—all of those are grace because because it's post-fall, and that's what we need. Is grace, yes.
2: Um, they're yeah, they're gracious because God condescends by way of covenant how He relates to us first in the Noaic, right, then in Abrahamic. But I like the way that the old I I don't know what you think about this I think that the covenant of grace if we speak about it is really the new covenant because that's the one that merits salvation when we look at the Noahic covenant the Abrahamic the Mosaic and the Davidic those build on one another leading to the new which is the consummation of grace how he condescends to us and it's the only one that offers salvation and I think like Presbyterians a lot of the time whenever they say well it's all a covenant of grace, it's all an administration of the covenant of grace can get lost and kind of flatten all the covenants so that they don't really build on one another anymore. Mm. But the new covenant is really the how God offers us salvation. And so I think, would, would you say the new covenant is really the covenant of, of grace as <clears throat> far as comparing it to the covenant of works?
0: Yeah, I, I am not prepared to to land on a position on that yet, because there's a lot, I'm finding a lot of disagreement on what you're saying right now. So that's your view. And, and it's, it's shared, but it, so it's not, it's not coming out of left field, but it also is uh, there's disagreement in that. So, um, and some even say there is no covenant of grace at all. So it's just, there's the covenant of redemption Covenant of works, and then these biblical covenants, and come to a covenant of uh, the new covenant. But I don't want to go there just yet and go through all the detail. I, I have something else I'm trying to accomplish.
2: Yep. So the question was, um, why are the covenants of grace post-fall? And is that where?
0: You're why are the post-fall covenants called covenants of grace? Why are they?
2: Well, I would say the simple answer is because we can't do them by our works. Okay. Good. It's necessary. Okay. Good. By grace. <clears throat>
0: So if post-fall covenants are covenant of grace, covenants of grace, could we say pre-fall covenants, like redemption and works, are covenants of works? Yes? yes? No? Yes? You're in agreement here? And why or why not? I might be a little confused on your, what you have in mind with grace and works, but because I, it seems like there's
1: grace before the fall, too, that anything, anything God gives is grace,
0: so, you know. there, there is. And, and that is true. But when I'm talking about the covenant itself that's formed, is it on the basis of works or grace? That's what I'm talking about. And so any anything that God does is a condescension to us, which is gracious condescension. OK, so it's all in the context of he's a free agent. He's a, a he's a free actor. Um, and yet he chooses out of his freedom to graciously condescend. And, and is, there, is there any obligation on him to do that? I think that's what John, uh, John York was getting at. Is there any, any, anything that's obligating him? No, it's a free decision on his part, which is a gracious decision toward us. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about covenant of works. I want to provide an illustration here about why the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works in Genesis 2 16-17 are covenants of works and why, the, why works is an appropriate way to think about them. Um, providing an illustration from the covenant of redemption. When the father promised to give the son and elect people as a reward for his obedience, was that promise a matter of grace or something else? Can't be grace, right? Because grace is unmerited favor. Did God, the father in promising to give the son and elect people as a reward for his obedience, is that unmerited favor? Or is it merited? It's merited, right? Whatever the son does is in perfect accord with righteousness. So since whatever he does is in accord with perfect righteousness, the reward that he receives for what he does in righteousness is what's owed. It's not graciously bestowed, right? It's what he's owed. His reward is his righteous remuneration, that which is due for his obedience. In other words, it would be wrong for the father not to reward the son for doing what the son did. Robert Raymond quotes Meredith Klein's argument. He says, it says the specific commitment of the father in the eternal covenant was to give the son, the elect, as the reward for his obedience. And And that is precisely what the son receives, not one missing Judged by the stipulated terms of their covenant, there was no injustice, but rather perfect justice. By the same token, there was no grace in the father's reward of the son. It was a case of simple justice. The son earned that reward. It was a covenant of works and the obedience of the son, active and passive, was meritorious. In other words, what he did in his active and passive obedience here on earth, he merited the reward that he received. What's the reward that he received? Look at each other. Us. So pre-fall covenants, inter-trinitarian covenant of redemption, which is also called the eternal covenant, and also the covenant of works, are both based on justice, not on grace. They're based on what is owed. When we think about justice simply being getting what one deserves, that's why those covenants are covenants of works, covenants of justice. And that's why we say that Adam owed obedience to God here in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. That's what he owed. It's justice. So there's retributive justice. God meted out for Adam's disobedience. What was that retributive justice? What was that retribution? <laughs> we're, we're living in it, right? It was death. Um, that was what was due. We should also recognize, though, that had Adam obeyed God, and this is what we'll come to next time, if he had obeyed God, the reward of life for obedience, that also would have been accorded to justice, remunerative justice, reward, right? Post-fall covenants are based on divine grace because God, as God withholds his punishment upon guilty sinners to bless them instead, he's giving them what they don't deserve, Given them what Christ deserves—that's grace. Okay. So that's not to say that covenants w- uh, with pre or post-fall do not ultimately flow out of the grace of God. That's Nick, your concern. They most certainly do flow out of the grace of God. Everything flows out of the grace of God, since God dealings, God's dealings with creatures in general and His condescension, condescension to commune with mankind in particular are not owed, but they're an extension of His goodness. Okay. Bobbing says this. All this is possible solely because God in his condescending goodness gives rights to his creature. Every creaturely right is a given benefit, a gift of grace, undeserved and non-obligatory. All reward from the side of God originates in grace. No merit, either of condignity or congruity, is possible. True religion, accordingly, cannot be anything other than a covenant. It has its origin in the condescending goodness and grace of God. It has that character before as well as after the fall. For religion, like the moral law and destiny of man, is one. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace do not differ in their final goal, but only in the way that leads to it. In both there is one mediator, then a mediator of union, now a mediator of reconciliation, In both there is one faith, then faith in God, now faith in God through Christ. And in both covenants there is one hope, one love, and so forth. Religion is always the same in essence. It differs only in form. So, end quote. And what I want you to see there is it is all of grace, and yet there is a different form, though it's the same through and through. There's a continuity from this passage all the way through the rest of the Bible. The London Baptist, so that's trying to explain the concept of why works is not a dirty word and why it's, <clears throat> why it's important, to, for, like Chuck said, for us to understand definition and content or uh, context so that we can understand and appreciate why works is a good, good thing. And why, why we're, our salvation is so precious because Christ accomplished it for us, earned it by his merit for us, and it was owed and it was God's duty to give it to him. Just as it's the father's duty to give and elect people and he'll lose none. So the security of our salvation is bound up in this. The, our, our perseverance, our assurance is bound up in this. And understand this, guys, our dignity as human beings is bound up in this too. Your understanding of what it is to be a man, what it is to lead your family, what it is to work in the world, what it is to work in the church, everything that you do is bound up in these ideas, and it's seminal right here in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. Going on to just, um, well, I'm not going to be able to read what I wanted to from the Westminster Confession. I'll just read our London Baptist Confession. I want to talk about the Confession of Covenant. So, chapter 7 of God's covenant. Section 1 says the distance between God and the creature. And this is just basically trying to summarize, put into summary form, what we have been talking about. And hopefully all this will ring true for you. Section 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do, um, that although reasonable as reasonable creatures do we owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Section 2, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, promising to give to all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Number three, section three, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And I think that's what you're describing there, uh, Austin. It's founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain eternal or obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Realize that went by kind of fast, but I also realize that you have a copy of the London Baptist Confession for yourself. And if you have misplaced your copy, talk to us. We'll get you one. And uh, it's also on the website. Bob Inc. goes on to assert several things here. about. Well, I'm going to skip this for right now, and we'll come back to it. Um, it's a good thing of having notes, I can punt it to next time. I want to talk real quick, just as we conclude here, about why covenant matters. I'm going to give you some um, several words here. Dignity, devotion, duty, and delight. Dignity, devotion, duty, and delight. First of all, dignity. And this is a question for you. What dignity do we find in the fact that God relates to us by covenant? What dignity do we find in the fact that God is relating to us by covenant? What dignity do we possess by the fact that he does that? Josh.
1: It's just, it's just awesome. Like the creator of the universe would, would <coughs> communicate with us and offer us a covenant. As, that's the, the dignity like we talked about the last couple of times. The, the dignity of being in the image of God, being humanity, the privilege of it. It's just It's an
0: amazing privilege. It is. It is an amazing privilege. When God commanded, when God the Father commands God the Son in the covenant of redemption, did God, did the Father expect the Son to be able to perform what he commanded him to do? So is that, is our federal head, did was the son expected? Did Jesus Christ, was he expected to do what God commanded him to do?
1: Yes.
0: Do you see how that places dignity on Jesus Christ? Honor that he's honored that way? Now go back to our first federal head, Adam. And when God commands him, is there dignity on Adam? Did he expect Adam to be able to perform what he commanded him to do? <coughs> It's awesome. It is awesome. That's the right word, the right use of the word awesome, by the way. Um, Joel, did you raise your
2: hand? Yeah, it, it kind of denotes and presumes that man has the ability, the cognitive ability to think for reason, to respond back to God, which no other creature has the ability to do, the ability to think, to, to take uh, communication from God and respond back to him
1: in the yeah. right, proper way which we don't see any other creature having the ability or
2: consciousness to think about how I relate to God, how I respond to God based on what he has told me and given me
0: to do. Not I, even an expectation on God's part. That he, he just bypasses all the creatures, all the animals. He doesn't, doesn't pay him any mind when it comes to commands, when it comes to duties and obligations, religious and moral obligations. When one animal eats another animal, there's no moral sense of duty that he shouldn't have done that. Right? Um, yes. Joe? I think when,
2: like, with our kids too, when, when we see them growing up, thinking one day this kid is, they have a calling and they're going to be better, they're going to be called to something greater. Right now they're kind of watching cartoons or doing <coughs> something silly at home, but you think you want to give those kids a vision of, you know, one day you're going to be the leader of the house. Yeah. You're going to be the man or you're going to be. The woman who's taking, bringing up their kids, and where when they hear that, they go, really like it doesn't process so much in their brain, but they aspire to that, where they see no. my dad believes that I can do this one day Yeah grow up into this. So.
0: That is so good, so well said too. Um, this this concept and the way God treats Adam here didn't treat him he didn't create him by the way as a 4-year-old he didn't nurse him from birth and bring him up and wean him and 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 raise him you know up to be an adult he created him as an adult he created him as complete ready and you see how he treats him there and you say the same thing that you just said that this instructs and informs our parenting how we how we think about our children how we think about grandchildren how we have, a, have an, a higher expectation of them than they have for themselves, and we call them to it. And it invests them with confidence that we would expect that of them. And I think parents too often have such a low view of not only their children, but a low view of what they are designed to be and to do. And so if they, if they don't hold a, a high bar, they don't call their kids to it. All the kids can do is basically, I mean, all an adult male these days that we've been told from our culture, all an adult male is, is a basically grown boy that just plays with bigger, more expensive toys. And women are always like rolling their eyes at us. And so there's that little boys club getting around together and drink beers and talk about the women and the women kind of scoff and mock and complain about the men. And it's just this battle all the time. Is that, is that really what we are? Is that really what God designed us to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's such a low view, low understanding. It's just real quick, I saw a hand over here. Okay. You're on. Um,
2: it just, I think it really helps me to remember that covenant is the highest form of union that anybody can have together. Because, like, in Genesis 15, mm-hmm. after sure. after Abraham says, "Well, how how will I know that you're going to perform this for me, God?" and he tells him to gather the animals and split them. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 17 it says, "When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking fire and pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces," as if God was saying, "If I do not fulfill my covenant promises to you, so be this done to me." Yeah, right. right? And mm-hmm. and and. And it can't be annulled, like Paul says. A covenant made, ratified 430 right. years later, cannot be annulled. It is the highest form of promise. It's different than contract, different than friendship, different than anything else. And that's so, how God relates to. And it. go
0: back and go back to what you said. The covenant is the highest form of union and communion. Let's let's use those two words: union and communion. Highest form. And we we can make the argument for us in the evangelical world because of all of our emphasis on marriage and marriage seminars and all the books on marriage and everything. We get that in form in the terms of marriage. And you see that. You could you say, say uh, God had Adam name all the animals in Genesis chapter 2, right? But among the, all the animals, he couldn't find a helper corresponding to him. And so God put him to sleep, made a woman, brought him to the man, woke him up, brought him to the man. And we see that as like the closest union between human beings, Right. What union and communion was prior? This one. This union and communion. And that's why even the relationship between a man and his wife is predicated upon this union that is to be between man and his creator. Our federal head with his creator. So yeah, great, great comment. Anybody else? So... What dignity do we find? We see that God created Adam in his own image. He designed him, he equipped him, he commissioned him, he assigned him to exercise dominion. God created Adam as a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. God created Adam in moral perfection, like God, righteous and holy. And God treats us with dignity, a great dignity that befits the special rank and privilege that we have as human beings above the rest of his creatures. He treated Adam that way, and his God never changes. He's immutable in the way he thinks and what his design is and what his purpose is. He treats Adam as an adult, as a man with dignity and respect. You could say as a partner, though not on equal plane with God, but as a partner. In, In fact, that's what, as we've talked about before, that's what Adam is called to do is to be the representative head on the earth, visible, physical, bodily, embodied on the earth to exercise dominion over his creation. That's why we see that Christ must fulfill the promises of the millennial kingdom that he would embody visibly presently on this earth, those promises to made to um, God's representative uh, dominion head over the earth. God regards Adam's free will. He rightly expects submission and obedience, but he doesn't coerce it. He doesn't program Adam to do what he wants. He, he commands him. And then he expects him to obey. And that is a, is a high form of respect and honor. He commands, but then he leaves the duty to Adam's will, to Adam's choice, and outworking of man's freedom or responsibilities. So this is the dignity that God has placed upon mankind. So, next, next word I said is devotion. How does the dignity with which God treats us inspire devotion to God? For you. Does it inspire, inspire any devotion to God? Yeah, yeah. Nick. Your your um your devotion is willing. You you've chosen to do it, and so you're you bought in. You're not being coerced. Anymore. Okay. It's willing, and when you use the word willing, devotion being willing, I'm kind of seeing in the word there in the word will, which is an aspect of our what it is to be a human being created in God's image. We have a will. We have an intellect. We have affections. And so you could say the whole of us is involved in this devotion to God, that we must understand, and this is what we're trying to do today, is understand, and our will gets involved, but it's our will that's combined with our understanding and our affections. Our affections get involved. And that's what every, the whole of us is involved and creates this this desire for devotion, inspires devotion to God. And Somebody else? Yeah, Brett? I was just
1: thinking as, as we just meditate on... Christ and his work uh, securing our salvation that just, you know, inflames my affections for him and just Mm -hmm. makes me want to uh, follow Mm -hmm. after him. That will, but that that affection inside, as you meditate on what Christ has done for you, that's going to make you want to obey God and do what he has commanded you to
0: do. Absolutely Absolutely. does. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Stephen? Gratitude to God. Gratitude to God? yeah gratitude gratitude fills our hearts in this and drives our devotion as well one more Chuck well just
1: thinking of the biblical terms of using devotion in the sense of uh, sacrifices devoted mm-hmm. to destruction those kind of that concept of devotion being set apart for that purpose <clears throat> my devotion to God is that like you were saying earlier, will affections, all of those things, the whole being, mm-hmm. it just stirs me to want to 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 place all of myself into in, God's use.
0: Good, yeah, excellent, yeah. You think about that concept of sacrifice, and you have all these lambs and stuff in your flock, and and um, you're going to eat some of them, you're going to use some of them for wool, and some of them for breeding, and all that, and you're going to take this one though. This this one, it's perfect could bring you a lot of money on the market, but you're going to set this one aside and devote it to the Lord. Devote it means all of it is given, all of it burned, all of it consumed on the altar. And that's the idea of devotion. So knowing how God made us, how he treats us with what great honor he bestows on us by condescending to us, stirs our affections, deepens our devotion to love and serve him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So how does, the next word is duty, dignity, devotion, duty. What is our duty to God and how is devotion necessary to our duty?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the duty, it it all ties up these other things. Culturally, I've heard it said, I think it's true that as Americans, we really don't understand covenant like a lot of other former cultures did that we take it so very lightly. But if we really understand the seriousness of a covenant and we're really appreciative of what we received, there's. The duty springs forth from that. How can I not want to be dutiful to someone who's pursued me so hard? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it, I think that's very well said. And when you think about American culture, we are a, a nation founded on, we, we kind of pride ourselves in being founded on rebellion. I think, that's a, I think that's an oversimplification, and it actually does injustice to some of the founding of our nation, which is a lot on principle. Um, but, but that idea of covenant, that concept of covenant... We, do. we have lost that. We're needing to rediscover Discover.
2: that. Steve? I think uh, just Chuck's comment made me think of Spurgeon's quote where he said,
0: if God has chosen us, let us be choice men. Uh-huh. That, that's, know, that's the idea that, here. Or, yeah, <laughs> the frozen chosen caricature. <laughs> yeah. Like if God has, you know, he's
2: called you not to go sit on the couch and do nothing. Right. You know, he's called right. you to do something mm-hmm. that an unbeliever, you know, is not called to do, at least at this point, you know, until he
0: can say yeah, that that idea of of you know kind of a, a self-satisfied, arrogant attitude and being called chosen by God is so out of step with being chosen by God that I question whether that person is really chosen by God. But to be chosen by God means your heart's filled with gratitude, and you you do see the high calling that God has placed on you to select you out of a, a mass of humanity. For his own purposes as a gift to his son? What me? What? That's the question. Why me? And then it drives this this attention to the duty here that we have, the obligation that is a joy. I mean, is there anything that God has commanded us that's bad? If he commanded us and he knows me intimately and you intimately, doesn't he doesn't he give us good commands? Things are things that we rejoice in. Absolutely. Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 10, 10, 12, and 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What is your duty? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commands and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today For your good. That is a high form of religion at the beginning. High form of religion. Lastly, delight. So we got dignity, devotion, duty, delight. How does dignity, devotion, and duty result in our delighting in God? Is it not self evident? So having moved from dignity to duty or to devotion, to duty, to delight, we can see the delight in God. The more we delight in God, the more we love him and see with amazement using Josh's word. Awesome. The awesomeness of this and what we're called to Uh, delighting in God takes us back to recognizing how high and holy God is, how unchangeable are his ways from the very beginning, how incredibly privileged we are that he would condescend to interact with us, to covenant with us, Command us to do his will. I mean, we should be so honored that he would command us. We ought to be struck that we have been set apart for such honor among all of God, God's creatures and seek to do his will as his agents. We are agents of God. We're, we're agents of the King to do the King's work, do the King's bidding. I'll leave you with this thought from Balvenc and then I'll pray. He says at bottom, religion is a duty, but also a privilege it is not work by which we bring advantage to God, make a contribution to him, and have a right, right to a reward. It is grace for us to be allowed to serve him. God is never indebted to us, but we are always indebted to him for the good works we do. On his part, there's always the gift. On our part, there's always and alone the gratitude. And for that reason, religion is conceivably, or conceivable only in the form of a covenant and comes to its full realization only in that form. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, these concepts uh, come from your mind and come from your condescending grace toward us. We see that at the very beginning and we see that in the very first words, let there be light. And there was light. And Father, we thank you for creating light, life. And every good thing, we thank you that we are your men, and that we have been chosen to do your will. We've been set apart as a gift, a gift to your son, whom he uh, fulfilled all the law for us and, um, and fulfilled your perfect will, uh, that he would receive that gift and uh, receive that really that merit. Um, we thank you that you have rewarded him, and we pray that we would be fit uh, rewards for him that we would serve him with love and devotion and serve you and see our great worth and dignity that you've bestowed upon us. We ask, Father, that you would help us to absorb uh, what we've learned and then that we would turn around and teach this to our children, our grandchildren, and um, that we wouldn't be slack, but that we would work uh, according to your grace and your favor upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.